Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, oddly enough, well, wait, that wait, is, yeah. oh, go, you have more to say. I, I do. Yeah, you're not letting oh, say, me. Damn, well, do, do say. Damn. Okay. Damn. Say. Okay. Talk. So let's, yeah. <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can do that again. Uh, Welcome to Two Designers Walk Into a Bar. A place where pop culture creatives discover design icons that make us tick. And we share a few cocktails in the process. Yep. Nothing brings the world together every couple of years like the Olympic Games. With such a large stage and a chance to influence audiences around the globe, designers jump at the chance to create something great. Today we're going to bring you a couple of stories from Games Past discussing the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Mix your favorite flaming cocktail, arrange yourself in the proper luge position for easy listening, and join us on our victory lap as we celebrate returning to the bar. Okay, Todd, so we're back in the bar once again. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was thinking... What better place is there than a bar to watch sports with friends? You know, no other better place, I think. Yeah, and the only thing better than watching one type of sport is watching multiple sports, right? Multiple and strippers. Yeah, okay. Okay, that's we're well, not talking this, about strippers. No, because that would be a distraction with right. what I'm talking about. You know, some sports have streakers. That's kind of oh, like strippers. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, um, yeah, curlers uh and all sorts of things like the olympics has uh, all those kind of oddball sports in there and that's what we're going to talk about today yes the olympics are on the horizon uh they're about to kick off in tokyo japan and uh so yeah i think it's perfect because it's such a wonderful stage for designers to really um showcase their skills to the world I've been digging the Tokyo Olympics logos and graphics that I've seen so far. And um, I think uh, we both have some other uh, past games that we're going to highlight the branding systems of, don't we, Elliot? Yeah, yeah. Now, my tale um, is actually going to be a little bit more of an interesting one in that while it's certainly a tale of design and it's a tale about the Olympics, mm-hmm. it's really more of a tale centered around a town that um, was on the international stage for a little while, but then they weren't. 
and we'll we'll get into the reason why it's it's kind of an mm-hmm. interesting backstory uh and it, okay and it talks a little bit about the selection process and and how they determine where the olympics are going to be oh yeah interesting well my tale also has some interesting selection criteria and i chose one that is so of the period that it happened in and highly influential with its brand system and its graphics. And it was highly touted as sort of the beginning of modern uh, Olympics as we know it. So you start and tell me uh, where you are. Where, where, what city are you in with your Olympics, Elliot? <laughs> well, maybe I should start with the year. Okay. Because that might start to, start to drop a little bit of a hint in here. So Todd, and, and to all the listeners out there who have listened to our, our past episodes. And, uh, and we thank both of you from the bottom of our hearts. Um, yes, we do. You know, um, folks know I'm a little bit obsessed. I don't know if I call it. Well, I'll call it obsessed. You can call it whatever you like. Freak. Uh, I, I have a fascination or I have undue attention focused on the year 1976. Yep, yeah, that is true. We, uh, we did a whole episode on uh, that year um, yes. in our last season, right? Yes, correct. That's, well, what, you ho- call hopefully, pro- that's hopefully, what you call it cross-promoting. Yeah, hopefully it's not our last season. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> I, I, in our, well, in our previous season. Yeah, thank that? you. I, w- I was a little worried. I was thinking, <laughs> okay. do you know something I don't? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, reta- I'll retake that. We did a whole episode on 1976 in our previous season. Right, yes. Elliot? Yes, we did. We did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think we should just keep all this in here and let the chips fall yeah, where they not? may. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it could go either way. So, kids, uh, for those of you who may not remember this far back, the Olympics, the Summer and Winter Olympics, used to actually be in the same year. Mm-hmm. So they were in two different cities like they are now, but uh, they would always be held in the same year, six months mm-hmm. apart. So the Winter Olympics in 1976 were in Innsbruck, Austria, okay? Now, that in and of itself is not particularly interesting. Obviously, it's Austria, it's in, it's in uh, Europe, it's in Western Europe, it's known for skiing, it's got mountains. It's like, okay, fair enough. But the interesting thing is that in 1976, that was only 12 years uh-huh. after the last time Innsbruck had hosted the Olympics. I didn't remember that. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, so something's up, right? So how did they get the games again so quickly? Okay, Todd. So I'm going to unpack a story here for you that's about both Olympic success and Olympic failure. And of course, anything involved in the Olympics is on a world stage, right? Right. right. Okay. So... We know where future Olympics are getting held, right? So we know mm-hmm, after mm-hmm. Tokyo, you know, there's going to be the Olympics in Paris. You know, it's uh, coming back to L.A. in a few years, et cetera, et cetera. So going back to China, the planning starts to happen in advance, right? And, mm-hmm, and the reason mm-hmm. is because, of course, they have to build everything out. They have to fundraise. They have to, you know, among other things, get the citizens on board with the fact that their lives are going to be disrupted <laughs> for a little mm-hmm, while mm-hmm, while their mm-hmm. their you know city gets olympic uh olympics ready here's a question for you taking a quick tangent um okay when the olympics were in atlanta in mm-hmm. uh you know 1996 did you prior to the olympic it, well first of all you know you were living in the south did you go to the olympics 
I did not. Did you happen to visit Atlanta when they were prepping for the Olympics? I did not. It was torn apart. Was it really? Oh, yes. Wow. They had to build a lot of different stuff downtown uh -huh. and uh -huh. just the hi highways and all of this different stuff. So I can understand. The, re the only reason I bring that up is I wasn't living there, but I was visiting there. Actually, ironically, uh -huh. it was I had just gotten out of school and I was looking at different places to live. And I looked at uh -huh. what was happening in Atlanta and I said, no way in hell. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm looking somewhere else. I was like, that's not going to happen. I was like, this is crazy town, right? So, uh, you know, that was me like peeking, peeking behind the curtain at the great and wonderful Oz a little bit. <laughs> I was sort of like, this is the way this city runs. I want no part of it. And I'd like... And I, and I think what you mean to say, Ellie, is that, that we love all of our listeners from Atlanta and we would love to come visit you now that the Olympics are over. Yeah, now that the Olympics are long gone, uh, you know, God bless you, God bless Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Atlanta, Atlanta now is fine. Cool aquarium, you can get Coke there. Like, yeah, it's a great place. Okay. Anyway, as with any Olympic Games, a number of cities pitch the International Olympic Committee, or the IOC, mm -hmm. right? So they're, mm -hmm. they're headquartered in Switzerland, uh, Lausanne, Switzerland, and, you know, they're always fielding uh, these pitches from different cities, right? So the Olympic Games in 1976 were the 12th. And when I say 12th, I mean XII. It's like the Super Bowl. It's official. It's Roman numerals, right? Right, right. right. That it, makes it fancy. Yeah, it does. Well, you know, it's international. Everybody knows what XII well, means. And the Romans were big into pro football, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. And of course, in Olympic Games, Winter Games. Yeah. Oh, they, yeah, they were huge into the Winter Olympics. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, them and the Jamaicans. <laughs> so who? So you, you mentioned some of the other contenders. Who were some of the other yeah. contenders? Okay. So there was outside of the United States, there were a number of cities that tossed their hats into the, <clears throat> the Olympic ring. See what I did there? Uh, -bum. Wah, wah. Yeah, that was that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. well, you know, it's uh, a gift, man. I can't, I can't wait to say I know you when your comedy writing career takes off. Yeah, yeah. Conan O'Brien, call me, <laughs> call me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so some of these Olympic cities were, and and um, for anyone from these places, I apologize in advance for my ham-fisted pronunciations. Sion, S-I-O-N, Sion, Switzerland. Tampere, T-A-M-P-E-R-E, Finland, and I think it's uh, Vancouver is how you say Van it. Vancouver. Van Vancouver. Yeah. Canada. Yeah. 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 It, well, yeah, it's it's, it's a it's Canada. a you know it's a metric spelling, so I'm not really sure you know how right, to how to convert right. it. Um, but, Sorry, you sound a bit right though. Yeah. Yeah. I was. Uh, you know, I've been out in the boot. Ew. Yeah. Sorry, uh, Canadian listeners. It was it was nice having you come this far in the uh, episode. Um, we'll we'll join you with the Atlantans. <laughs> yeah, we're alienating. We're banning a thousand here. There were a number of U.S. cities as well. So one of them was Lake Placid, New York. So we know how mm -hmm. that ended for Lake Placid. Of course, they got the Olympics four years later, the Winter Olympics. Right. Right. Salt Lake City, Utah, that may sound familiar. We also know how it ended for them. You know, they got right. the Olympics uh, a number of years later. Seattle, Washington, uh, to the best of my knowledge, they've never hosted Olympics. They got coffee. They, they, yeah, they got Starbucks, so that was they a good Starbucks. consolation prize. Yeah, uh -huh. grunge. Okay, but the city I want to talk to you about today is none other than the mile-high city of Denver, Colorado. Does that ring a bell Sweet. with the Olympics? Does that when you think Olympics and when you think 
host cities in the United States. Does, does Denver, is that one of the cities that pops into your head? Uh, no, I'm, I'm sorry it doesn't, but that, I, I may just not know uh, that much about it. But no, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of Denver hosting the Olympics. There's a reason for that. Oh, is this the juicy part of the story? It is. But right, you know us. what? No, no, no. Oh, I'm no, going to no. leave it as a cliffhanger. I want to oh. hear a little bit about oh. your choice, and then we will come back, and I'll, I'll spill the tea a little bit with this. Okay, I see what you did there. Uh, well, that uh, I'm eager to hear about the 76 uh, Innsbruck, Austria Olympics. And I am just a few years later, um, Elliot, I chose the 1984 LA, LA, Los Angeles Olympics. And the reason why I thought about that first was um, I was uh, I was in design school at the time. And uh, obviously the Olympics have a lot of international influence. It certainly had a big influence on me. Uh, it was one of the first times I remember seeing a comprehensive uh, design platform. Turns out it wasn't just me that had missed that. This was one of the first times they had actually done it. But let me give you a little bit of starting here. Um, they actually had an emblem that was created by Robert Miles Runyon, the stars in motion. You probably have seen it. It's like three different stages of stars. Um, it's red, white, and blue. Um, Bob Runyon says he went through about 3,500 sketches to get to that. Yes, I am familiar with this logo. In fact, I had a I had a beach towel with this logo on it, so I'm I'm familiar with it at a very very large size. It's, you know, at the time it's probably about as as big as I was. Yeah. But uh, it remind it's kind of like if the American flag and like the old school uh, AT and T logo, the little uh -huh. like step and repeat kind of globe logo, uh -huh. it was almost like if they had a, if they had a baby, it would have been this logo. That's what it kind of reminds me of. Well, it's interesting that you put it like that, uh, Elliot, because that was actually um, one of the uh, problems with it too. Is uh, it was felt like that that emblem was way too nationalistic to represent the International Olympic Games. Now it was used, obviously, mm -hmm. um, but it was red, white, and blue. Um, so it was used sort of as selling official merchandise, like beach towels, like you said. Yeah. But then they hired um, Deborah Sussman to do the whole design system and the whole um, environmental graphics and the promotion. And that's the work that we probably all recall when we think about 1984 and Los Angeles, SoCal New Wave, if you will, SoCal POMO, postmodern, Elliot. Man, that's a, that's a lot of portmanteau abbreviations. That, I know, man. Well, we have to say SoCal POMO now if we're going to talk about the LA Olympics. Oh, okay. Um, D does anyone in SoCal refer to those? games As by that Como? yeah is that like oh. a thing there well yeah everything i read that all they said was it was it was new wave socal pomo oh um, oh yeah i mean let's just as far as you know everything i read was that how how, but, how much did you read well yeah you know uh enough but you talked a little bit about how um the the, uh, the cities uh themselves so uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about how they chose L.A., and then I'll come back later and 
tell you a little bit more about the design system and Deborah Sussman, who ended up doing that. But why LA in 1984? And for those of you um, who weren't around in 1984, it's exactly the way you think it would be if you listened to uh, Madonna records and watched the Brat Pack movies. It was, it was very colorful, it was very bright, uh, it was very geometric. Anyway, so LA was awarded the, uh, the bid for the, to be the host city in 1978. So they did it you know, quite a few years in advance. But get this, Elliot, the bid was only between two cities um, because at the time, uh, in the 72 Munich Olympics, uh, the murder of the Israeli athletes oh, yes. had really put a black spot on the Olympics. And then you're talking about the Winter Olympics of 76, but the Summer Olympics in Montreal in 76 were a financial disaster. Yes. So, so there were only two cities that wanted to host the Olympics. One was L.A., and the other one was Tehran, Iran. So... I don't know if you really, if you recall things that were happening around 1978 in Iran. I recall they weren't good. They weren't good. That's true. Uh, some shit went down is what happened. Um, so ultimately, the um, Tehran bid was withdrawn due to growing revolution policy and the Iranian government. So this is when the Shah was ousted and then... Uh, Later, 1979, hostages were taken. Mm -hmm. um, and anyway, so that we're not talking about that yet. So, um, ta-da, oddly enough, L.A. won the bid. And that's in quotation points. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Elliot, here's the lesson. It is, that's how you win a game, man. You bump out the other competition and cause revolution, and then you just win that way. You own it that way. So you're saying that you think the civic group that put together the bid for the Olympics in L.A. was responsible for the upheaval halfway around the world? I'm, I'm not going to go on record as to saying that, but, you know, things happen, right? Yeah, true. Things happen, Elliot. I mentioned that 1984 was sort of smack in the new wave movement. Um, oh, you remember Memphis style? Completely. I mean, it yeah. was all like anything goes, right? MTV um, was kind of at was really yeah. coming on strong. You know, this is the era of Miami Vice. It was right, around this time. Right. Everything was neon. Everything was bright. Uh, Everything. Corporate and it was, slick. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. Okay. You said two. You said two really important things there uh, that I want to fill out a little bit. So you said corporate slick, first of all. And the 84 Olympics in L.A. were uh, widely considered to be the most financially successful Olympics. Huh, really? Yeah, due to low construction costs because you know what they did? They reused the um, L.A. stadium yeah, the from Coliseum. the very first time. Yeah, yeah. yeah from what, the 30, 32? Yeah, it's like, I wanted to say 32 also, but... Um, but yeah, I couldn't. Uh, I didn't write that down. But it was in the 30s, so they reused that. So construction cost was down, and this was sort of the start of a lot of private funding and sponsorships too for the Olympics. So mm, yeah. everything was like the official, 
the official soft credit card of the, yeah. yeah the official yeah. sweater of the official toenail clipper of um, so much so that they profited over 250 million dollars from the olympics who is they like the city of la or the the city of la the um well i, I don't know i don't want to say the committee but um but yeah i guess that would it would have to be the city of la and the organizing committee in la okay so i want people to drop a pin in that little data point that you just mentioned because that is going to be relevant later on when i continue to tell my story Okay, cool. And then the last thing I'm going to say, and we'll continue to your story, is you also, you mentioned sort of the look of the 84 Olympics was so of the time. It was Miami Vice. It was synthesizers. Um, it was uh, Brat Pack movies. So here's just some of the songs from that, uh, that era that were hit songs. And I'm going to say soundtracks ruled the airwaves back then. Um, see if you remember any of these songs, Elliot. I Can Dream About You, oh, Dan yeah. Hartman, yeah. from Streets of Fire. Yeah. There's No Stopping Us. Ain't No from... Stopping Us Now. No, that's a different one. This one's what? called There's No Stopping Us from the hit movie. I know one of your favorites, Breaking. Oh, well, I'm more of a fan of uh, Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo. Uh, well, yeah, I know. That's one of the rare ones like Godfather 2 where the, the Empire Strikes Back. Really, I mean, yeah, it's, really it's, 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 known, it's known as the Empire Strikes Back of breakdancing movies. Yeah, it is. And, and then finally, a couple other soundtracks that were dominating the airwaves. Uh, little ditties from Footloose and When Doves Cry from Purple Rain. So massive soundtrack, movie, music. All happening about that time, slickly produced, as you said before. So that is what the world was hearing and seeing in the summer of 1984. You know what's interesting as you're talking about this? <laughs> I was just thinking about other cultural things that were coming on the scene that really represented like fitness and athletic mm -hmm. activity. Mm -hmm. Think about Jane Fonda workout Jane Fonda. videos, yeah. leg yeah. warmers, jazzercise, you know, yeah. all of this stuff that was highly branded and, and commoditized and very, very packaged. And really this, the eighties, this was around the time, you know, the late seventies really when LA landed the games going into the 80s, the other thing that was happening in pop culture was when really not only music, but you mentioned movie soundtracks. So, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. the main two products from Los Angeles, you know, entertainment, music, mm -hmm, movies, mm -hmm. are, right. you know, these blockbuster albums, these blockbuster movies, they're all getting exported around the world, right? So the world right. is increasingly being introduced to American culture in these snackable sort of pop culture formats like a little microwave right. dinner of american culture here's this right. movie footloose here's this album from the movie you know all these sorts of things and so it's interesting i wonder as you were doing your research on this and and some of the impetus for for some of these things was it celebrating the city and was it celebrating American culture? Like you mentioned the, the, the original logo being quote unquote too American and that it was red, mm -hmm. white, and blue mm -hmm. and it was aspects of the flag and 
stars and stripes and so forth? That's a great question. It certainly, of course, was for an American audience, right? Because we have mm -hmm, to puff mm -hmm. our chests out and say, like, look, we had the Winter Olympics four years ago, and now we have the Summer Olympics. America's a pretty great place. Or mm -hmm. was it more along the lines of what the rest of the world expected out of not only America, but specifically out of Hollywood? Well, um, great observation. And I do have uh, some information about that. And I'm going to save that. Uh, for my next segment after I hear a little bit more about yours. Oh, man, another cliffhanger. All I right. Know, I know. We are, Cliff is really getting hung all over the place here today. Speaking of the Olympics, there aren't nearly enough rings on the bar in front of me right now. That means we haven't even had five beers. If I had any say in the matter, Elliot, you'd get a gold medal for bar mix speed eating, but I'm not sure that's a sanctioned event. Tell you what, while we get online to petition the IOC with some new ideas, grab your cocktail shaker, mix something epic, and meet us back at the bar in just a minute. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. Hi, while we have your attention, if you want to learn more about us and the podcast, there are a few ways to do it. Visit our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. All of that is spelled out. No numbers. Kind of a long URL, so do yourself a favor and bookmark it. Once you're there, you can find links to more information about the subjects in this episode, our episode archive, and information about both of us. Wait... We do want people to visit, right? Well, oh, and look for us on social media. You can find those links on our website as well. And while we're at it, if you have a friend who you feel will dig on our rambling, tell him or her what we're up to. While we can't guarantee that they will remain your friend, we can guarantee that they will listen to at least 30 seconds of whatever episode you send them the link to. <laughs> That's being a little shameless. And speaking of being shameless, it wouldn't be a proper ask if we didn't mention that if you like what you hear, you can also make a donation via our website. We have a Nigerian prince handling all transactions for us. In fact, he told us to mention that we have stickers to mail to anyone who donates $10 or more. Are we done? We're done. We're done. Okay, so let's return, shall we, to, to Denver, Colorado, right? Yes. And you had mentioned that when I say Olympic cities, Winter Olympics, United States... You're saying that Denver doesn't pop to the top of your, your list like Salt Lake City might or right, like uh, Lake right. Placid might, for example. Right. Yeah. Well, there's a reason for that. Okay. 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 So Denver gets the bid, 
super excited. The Olympics are coming back to the United States. So the snowball, bad pun alert, starts rolling mm -hmm. with the design work even in advance of our bid, right? So mm -hmm. if you gotta represent the city, uh, show that you're sophisticated, show that you can compete on a global stage, you're gonna have to hire some pretty heavy hitters to uh, visually represent your town and what the games are going to look like, wouldn't you say? I would say. Okay. So it's the mid it's the mid seventies. Yeah. How about uh, how about a guy who's a pretty noteworthy designer in America, but also someone who has international appeal because he actually is from Europe. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. Maybe maybe a guy. Todd, you might be familiar uh, with who this guy is from his work. Does a lot of work with Helvetica. Um, he may, you, you might have encountered some of his work if you've ever ridden the subway in New York City. Oh, yeah, yeah, Vignelli and Associates. Yep, Massimo, so, Massimo. Yep, so your buddy Massimo yep. was asked by the city of Denver mm -hmm. to design the logo and the poster for their Olympic bid. Was it Bedoni or Helvetica? It was Hel. It was it was Helvetica, fella. Okay, good. We're going good. sans serif. Den Denver's okay. the West. It's got to be fresh. It's got to be new. Okay, got it, got it. Okay. Well, then now logo's done, right? Yeah, done, right? So the website brand channel had a great description. So obviously on our on our episode page, we're going to have pictures of this logo. We have a whole backstory about what this looks like, um, so you guys can jump in and take a look at it. And then in addition to the logo, we all, there was also a poster done that was kind of derivative of the logo. And the reason for that is, you know, they're starting to give away swag. They're starting to get everyone excited about this thing, right? So they're talking about this poster. Of course, the colors are red, white, and blue, white paper, red ink, blue ink. And uh, Brand Channel said, the poster expresses a simple and telegraphic logic. It is coldly mm. precise, yet mm. uplifting. Five rings. Three rows, two columns, two colors, two rules, and Helvetica in two sizes. What else do you need to know? That sounds too boring. <laughs> <laughs> so it had the number 76 knocked out of a, of a red block, you know, in big letters, yeah. big Helvetica letters. Of course, had to have the Olympic rings incorporated into it. You could say it, it's a little bit modern. Others might say it's a little bit cold. Maybe that's kind mm -hmm. of an ironic pun because it is the Winter Olympics, but I highly mm -hmm. doubt it if, you, mm -hmm. if Massimo Vignelli were, were right. a part of our uh, podcast today. But at any rate, this is this is what we went with. This is what we have, right? Okay, so we have our bid. We have you know our identity. Things are looking good, um, but you also have to keep in mind this is the year of the bicentennial, as we mm -hmm. talked about earlier, right? So right. you know, hearkening back to our prior episode on 1976, we have the beautiful Bruce Blackburn star that was happening, although it wasn't mm -hmm. yet happening at this point, right? It was right, right. that hadn't that hadn't started yet, but you know, oddly similar in terms of their their modernistic approach in both cases. Um, red, white, and blue. It's it's the year of the bicentennial. There, there's just a certain logic to this. You know, it kind of goes back to what you mentioned uh, with the original '84 mark. Although at this mm -hmm, point, mm -hmm. I don't think the U.S. was like 
self-aware enough that, it, that this was a problem. I think they right. were, you know, at least in the back of their minds, like, hey, it's our birthday party, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, yeah like, I think you're right. Let's yeah. celebrate this, right? Okay, so we have um, our our modern logo, but then we also need to have something that's maybe a little bit more approachable and a little bit more friendly, right? Mm -hmm. So the Mm -hmm. city also contacts uh, a a well-regarded designer and illustrator named Gene Hoffman. So he was living in San Francisco, but he had grown up in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And so he created a poster with a giant sort of schoolhouse rock style hockey player that was also going to be very appealing to people. So it's if the Vignelli poster was a little bit cold, this illustration would be a little bit warmer, a little bit more fun, a little bit more youth driven. Right. Mm-hmm. We have our bookends. We have our Gene Hoffman illustrated poster. We have our Vignelli kind of modern geometric poster. So life's good. Right. It's all coming together. It's all coming together for the city of Denver. Mm-hmm. So May 12th, 1970 rolls around. Mm hmm. And at a ceremony, a selection ceremony in Amsterdam, Denver was announced as the chosen city. Okay? Boom. Everything starts to explode. So the Olympic logo starts to appear on enameled pins, stickers, hats, posters, like I mentioned earlier, reports, the bid proposal and the manual, of course, that went to the Olympic Committee, and a whole ton of other promotional and marketing materials. Right? It worked. It worked. So what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, I thought we were talking about Austria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which uh, for those of you who don't have a map handy, uh, Denver and uh, Innsbruck are not close to one another at all. So you would say, without a shadow of a doubt, Denver and Innsbruck are not the same place. Uh, no. Okay. Yeah. So what did happen with Denver? Just one problem. So this is where. I'm going to return to the pin that we dropped earlier when you talked about the profitability of the LA Olympics. Uh-huh. Most Olympic games drive the host cities in a tremendous, tremendous debt. Okay? Oh, and uh-huh. the reason for that typically is because all these new facilities need to be built, right? Mm-hmm. The infrastructure mm-hmm. needs to be upgraded. And it takes, these are, you know, they pass bonds, they they do all these sorts of things. But the challenge is a lot of times all this stuff is used for the Olympics and then it sort of lays fallow after a while. You know, maybe like a university will take over some of it or, you know, it'll become a civic arena after it's used as an Olympic arena. But a lot of these cities, the crush of athletic and just event activity, the number of people who are filling all these places up, that's not sustainable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what happens is a lot of times it's a great idea in the moment. It's like buying the sombrero when you're in Mexico on spring break. But when you get back to the U.S., the sombrero isn't such a good idea anymore when you've sobered up a little bit and it's 30 degrees when you step off the airplane, right? Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. That's that's a great analogy that many can relate to. Yeah. We've all been there, meaning uh, Denver. Meaning you. Yeah. yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Meaning the sombrero. Okay. I, I've, I've been there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Todd, um, summer's right around the corner. Do you need a sombrero? <laughs> uh, you know, I've got a bunch already. I, I, I don't need any more, but uh, please do continue. So tell me, so it sounds like 
the rest of the world and the selection committee were really high on Denver, but not other people. <laughs> not. Uh, it turns out the residents of Colorado did not think that this was as good of an idea as the city of Denver and the rest of the world. There was kind of this donut around Denver yeah. that uh, really wasn't down with this happening, basically. So the hitch was that Colorado voters had to ultimately pass any legislation to fund the games. Oh, wow. No big deal, right? You know, right. I'm sure I'm sure Denver's like, hey, look. Who wouldn't want that? State pride, national pride. Who wouldn't want this? Yeah, turns out the voters of Colorado didn't want it. <laughs> so, oh man, so they voted it down. They voted the measure down in a three to two margin. So, in other words, for you know, every two people who voted for it, three people voted against it. They said sixty percent of voters said thanks, but no thanks. And their objections uh, were largely along the lines of what I mentioned earlier. They objected to the cost. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. objected to the the updates to the infrastructure. That is kind of the headache I mentioned in Atlanta, right? Like, mm -hmm. who wants mm -hmm. this stuff? But also, keep in mind, this is Colorado. And so they really place a high value, and rightfully so, on the environment there. And they did yeah. not think yeah. the environmental impact at the end of the day was going to be worth it. So Colorado gives uh, the IOC the Heisman, right? Thanks, but no thanks. So wow. this was the first time in history that a city was awarded the Olympics and then ultimately they punted. So this had <laughs> never happened before, right? So the International Olympic Committee starts scrambling, okay? They yeah. don't know what to do. So they return to Canada and they, they offer the games to Whistler, which is, you know, right outside of Vancouver, you know, in British Columbia right. and Canada. And they're thinking, well, this is going to be good. It's not too far away from uh, Denver, all things considered. The logistics mm -hmm. are pretty similar. But also, hey, Canada put in a bid earlier. Like, so, yeah, you know, they're one yeah. of the runners up, but they should be down with this. Yeah. Turns out Canada wasn't interested either. They basically <laughs> said, yeah, you know, that bid was put in by the uh, prior uh, administration. There's been a change in government. And uh, we are not interested either. <laughs> so, so now all of a sudden, uh, the IOC is the unpopular girl at the dance, right? So, 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 I, am I imagining this correctly that all the cities were sitting around the table and poor Innsbruck didn't put its finger on its nose to be called out <laughs> and got selected? So here, okay. So basically, there's there's one more uh, page in this chapter, right? Okay. So Salt Lake City, good old Salt Lake City, and their their Mormon earnestness. We would like to host the games, <laughs> but the International Olympic Committee at this point said, "You know what? We're done with the United States. You guys can go to hell. <laughs> like, you know, no thanks." So basically, they just returned to Europe, which mm -hmm. historically had welcomed the Olympics with more open arms. And uh, back to a city that they knew already had everything built out and it was still in good working order because it was only, you know, at that point, it wasn't even a decade old or around a decade old, right? Oh, wow, yeah. So, boom, that's why it went back to Austria. <laughs> so, wow. So, Denver got so close, you know, mile high city. Some, you know, I'm sure people living in Denver would say it's a world class city. Yeah, uh, but um, yeah, I've, I've been to Denver. Perfectly nice place. Um, 
But one of the things they cannot claim with all their microbreweries and legalized weed is uh, to have hosted an Olympic Games. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, man, that's a lot of uh, backstory drama there for the uh, 76 Olympics. Um, there wasn't quite that much. Well, I did. I did. I had the. Uh, I found the opposite thing in uh, in the L.A. Olympics, as I mentioned earlier, in that uh, there were only two cities <laughs> that had bid, and one of them, due to revolution, was uh, uh, kind of kicked out. Um, but let me talk a little bit about the design system itself of the L.A. Olympics. And uh, obviously, uh, this stuff is all posted on our website, along with uh, some interviews uh, for the by the creators. And speaking of, let me talk a little bit about uh, Deborah Sussman, who did the design system and environmental graphics and promotion. Uh, everything except for the emblem that Runyon and Associates did. So Deborah was she was born in Brooklyn. She took classes at Bard College in New York, the Chicago Institute of Art, where she earned a degree in graphic design in a program that was run by who? Laszlo Maholnaj, like the real deal. And this is interesting too. She also attended the Black Mountain School, which is here close to us, Elliot. Yes. I don't know if you're very familiar with that, but yeah, the folks from Bauhaus, Joseph Albers, Buckminster Fuller started the uh, this Black Mountain School, so she attended that as well. Now, if that pedigree of education wasn't enough, then she went to work for um, two guys named uh, Charles and Ray. No, no, no. Please tell me you didn't say two guys. No, I know. Charles and Ray Eames. She went to work for the Eames Company, and then she launched her own practice uh, in 1968. And her husband, a guy named Paul Preza, joined her. He was an urban planner. And so uh, when he joined in 1972, um, they had been working together for really a brief time when L.A. was awarded the, uh, the games. And... You know, the thing that I got out of uh, learning uh, from uh, what Deborah Sussman, how she got to her solutions, and this goes to the question that you dropped earlier, like was it meant to represent the United States? Was it meant to represent the city of Los Angeles? And what she says is that um, she was reflecting on the population and the diversity and the, the boldness and liveliness of Los Angeles. And she gained a lot of influence from her travel, uh, from indigenous cultures, uh, particularly like Mexico, China, uh, India, places like that that were known for creating great folk art by people who weren't necessarily looking to have gallery shows. They were just doing something and expressing themselves. Mm -hmm. So the colors that she chose were not red, white, and blue at all. She, she like jumped in the opposite pond. It was like magenta and turquoise and bright yellow and like these very vibrant colors combined with black and white checkerboards, which were um, pretty popular. Uh, at the time, you remember Vans. Yeah, so um, I was going to say, Jeff Spicoli's Vans. Yeah, Fast Time at Ridgemont High. Um, now, if all that magnificent 
fitness was not enough, she also started the LA chapter of AIGA with this other guy named Saul Saul Bass, I think is his name. I think he did. So, yeah, I think he made it big in movies at one point. He did, yeah, yeah, um, which is great. With a name like Saul Bass, you're not really going to do much otherwise. Well, I, I think he later opened a chain of pro shops. Oh, well, I'm glad he finally found happiness and success. So, yeah, her inspiration was diverse indigenous cultures that um, expressed Los Angeles and Southern California. And she combined these with traditional elements that you might find in the U.S., uh, such as stars and stripes, but they weren't overly uh, nationalistic. They weren't red, white, and blue. Um, they were bold shapes, um, patterns, as I said. And um, in working with the architect, uh, John Jordi, uh, they, they created all of these environmental pieces. Um, they created the wayfinding and he gave her uh, an interesting bit of advice, and I think this is so cool. When um, they were first starting out, it, let me let me guess: Did he say never stand up in a canoe? <laughs> that, and then the second thing he said was, "Don't look at this as just you're making signs to tell people what bus to get on. Think about this as the whole. You're doing like dream of this as a whole entire system." And uh, he referred to her design scheme as festive federalism, which I think was pretty fun too. And I remember, I remember this really well, obviously. I was an adult at the time. And it wasn't until I went back and started doing the research that I recalled that that emblem felt really disjointed compared to the other graphics of the uh, Olympic Games in mm -hmm. L.A. The, mm -hmm. It was like one was done by a corporation and one was, you know, really kind of trying to harness the future. I think also the other thing is the original logo, even though it was like dynamic, I guess, in the way it was mm -hmm. rendered, yeah. it was in a very fixed state. Like it really had nowhere to go. Right. Whereas what she did was create more of like a kit. And it was almost like a bunch of, for lack of a better phrase, Legos, if you will, like different yeah. patterns, yeah. structures, typography that could be pieced together in different ways for whatever was appropriate. You know, you're not going to have the sign to the bus that you mentioned earlier feeling like the podium that the winners of an event are standing on. Right, right. Like it, it has to marry, but they're, they have very, very unique purposes. And so they need to be in the same family, but they need to sort of be part of this system that you're describing. Right. And you know, there's a lot of great reasons for that other than just clear signage to help people understand that they're involved with the Olympics and they need to get on the right bus. But if you think about this, the Olympics are obviously a global event. Uh, they're a televised event. And seeing all of this stuff on television, whether it was in Los Angeles Coliseum or was in Oxnard or, you know, Northern California were some of them, it all felt like it was the same community. Mm -hmm. It felt like you were watching the same town because everything was held together with this uh, design system. And I started out our conversation by saying, the uh, 84 Olympics are not only 
sort of the first ones to be profitable, but sort of set the tone for creating these uh, design systems that really engulfed uh, the environment uh, as well as the uh, the materials and everything. So it all felt like a cohesive unit. It wasn't just put a logo on something and sell it and now it's part of the Olympics. It was have a color palette that you can use, have shapes, have patterns, um, have logos, have bold uh, signage and things like that that would go on to represent uh, everything for the Olympics. And again, I think what I really loved about this is um, she had this massive project and in all total I think it was about 150 designers who had worked who were working together they even gave them their own building away from the uh, Olympic Committee so they could be sort of unencumbered but it wasn't just like let's do a sign to help people get to the right bus it was dream big make this uh, part of an event like brand this whole thing and dream big and like see yourself in that and I thought that was really amazing uh, at the time and when I went back and looked at it for the research for this it really does hold up now it is definitely of the time it is definitely a new wave Southern California but it wouldn't look out of place today that's the great thing about it yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting when you were talking about this system being the the visual cues that really binds everything together. Right. I, mm -hmm. I had this aha moment that probably in the early mid-80s, there were a couple things going on, right? It was really probably the time that a majority of the country had color TV. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you could really start to take advantage of these colorful graphics. Like, it was really worthwhile. Right. 20 years prior, kind of didn't matter, because if you were watching the Olympics at all, it was on a black and white TV, probably over the air. It wasn't cable. So just the fidelity was so much worse, right? Yeah, yeah. Then the other thing is people had VCRs, right? Mm -hmm, so you could always mm -hmm. start taping things. You might go back and watch it later. And so for that reason, you kind of wanted it to look cool and appealing. It's like, oh, I taped this. Should I go back and watch it again? Oh, yeah, it looks like it'd be pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you know, you had, um, you know, you're talking about the commercialization aspect. And that reminds me of, you know, you obviously think of uh, Wheaties and Bruce Jenner and like all these other folks later mm -hmm. on after that mm -hmm. being on these Wheaties boxes. And I just think that the celebration of the athlete in America, you know, these are like the quote unquote movie stars of the Olympics. And, you know, some of these people are still around today, right? Mary Lou Retton, oh, yeah, still yeah, around yeah. today. You know, Patrick Ewing, uh, right. you know, what is Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, Carl Lewis, like, Carl Lewis. Yeah, yeah, like we remember all of these people. And this is really when the Olympic athlete, you know, I would say Bruce Jenner was probably the first one to like really break through and kind of become a household name or you know for the right, decathlon right. but this wasn't even that long after that and it and it really um i think this system helped to serve as an entertainment platform if you will for for these mm -hmm, folks mm -hmm. and for the country yeah it was they referred to it as the stage that they were building 
um, for these uh, athletes uh, to perform on. So it would be consistent all over the place. So this this begs the question. I know that the the Coliseum, of course, as a structure, is there. Uh huh. And I know that the Olympic torch is still there because you know they'll light it for other things that they other events they hold because I believe the Coliseum was built in the 30s for that original first yeah, Olympic Games we was, talked about. Yeah. yeah. And so are there any other remnants? I mean, obviously we have this system, but like if you're bouncing around and I know LA is a town that constantly is reinventing itself, but I keep wondering, are there any other landmarks from the 84 Olympics? Like, does any of this exist outside of like tchotchkes? N- not really. There's there are some st- some signage structures like um, statues and things like that, but you know pretty much it was all done for wayfinding and, and for that particular games. Um, but here's something interesting, and we'll post this uh, on our website as well. Uh, there was a um, a Kickstarter program that was launched a couple years ago. Um, I can't really, I don't remember exactly how long, but it wasn't very long ago to uh, actually hold a uh, LA 84 design retrospective in a gallery where they could assemble a lot of this stuff again for people to see, you know, because obviously a lot of people weren't around back then. uh, And it was, it it had such a significant impact on uh, design of the time as well as uh, future Olympic design. So, uh, we'll post that, and uh, it looks really interesting. So you could actually go in and sort of feel like you would walk back in 1984. That would be cool. I mean, yeah, I would think that a lot of this stuff ended up in storage somewhere. Like, you're not going to uh, yeah, destroy yeah. everything. Well, it's really funny. This is this is kind of a wonderful way to close the circle, I think. So the almost Olympics that happened in Denver, where is that stuff, right? Where can you find that, right? Because, I mean, again, this was, you know, created by a couple of prominent folks. So, actually, the Denver Public Library, and we will post this on the episode page as well, they have everything collected in in the library. So, you can go to Denver, yeah, and you can can review. And then also, so there's this guy who uh, calls himself the Logo Smith, and we'll we'll post his website up here. But he recreates a lot of like past corporate systems and mm. uh, like Olympic systems, and he actually took it upon himself to recreate all of these materials. So believe it or not, if you want one of the stickers, you can get a reproduction of the sticker. If you want one of the posters, oh, wow. yeah. And again, uh, it's very similar to how we posted the link to the bicentennial corporate Mm -hmm, standards mm -hmm, that someone mm -hmm. picked up and redid. So it was a wonderful treat to be able to find that and uh, and see that this work between the Denver Library and also between uh, this fellow, that the work lives on and that that anybody has access to it. Uh, That's great. And you know, speaking of having access, Elliot, I'm a little parched. I could use another trip back to the bar. I could too, because I would love for you to buy me another drink. Uh, Of course, I'd be more than happy because you're a gold medal winner to me, Elliot, all the time. Oh, well, thank you, Todd. There's no one else I'd rather be standing on the podium with. As long as I'm a bronze medal. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say like right next to me. Like actually, you can you hold my other medals, like show oh, them thanks. to me while I'm up on the podium. Oh, that yeah, 
I appreciate that. Hey, you know, right. for for you anything. You're you're too kind. You are you are magnanimous, man. I I don't even know how to spell that. <laughs> All right, here we go. Bye. Bye, guys. So, Jim, we got a problem with our podcast. Right. Nobody says it correctly. No. Some people say how to fix it. Or how do you fix it? But think of it like this. Whatever the problem, we're in this together. How do we fix it? How How do do we we fix fix it? it? Yeah. How do we fix it? The solution show from the political to the personal. Practical ideas for creative listeners. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Ideas that work. That's your radio voice, Richard. Oh, well, I know. (laughs) I love it. I couldn't do it to save my life. Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com.